0: Happy Friday, everyone. Uh, This is Richard Skipper of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Obviously, I'm not opening this morning with my usual fanfare. uh, And normally on Fridays, I do a Friday wrap-up show. But today is National Gun Violence Prevention Day. And uh, it's uh, a subject that uh, matters a lot to me. Uh, About 25 years ago, uh, I was having dinner uh, with uh, a few friends here in New York. When my sister called me to let me know that my sister in law uh, had been murdered, um, uh, the guy who took her life uh, it was a murder suicide uh, and uh, easy access uh to guns um and uh, you know it's a subject that uh, I have really been passionate about. Uh, I have marched, I have uh, picketed, I have done so much. Uh, to fight the NRA, Um, and a few weeks ago, uh, I was watching MSNBC, and I saw this amazing man, Ryan Bussey, and he was talking about his book, Gunfight, and I immediately called my associate, uh, Erin Caleb, and I was telling her about the book and about Ryan, and she said, let's see if we can get him on the show and uh, I'm grateful to say that he said yes uh, to Aaron and he is here today. Uh, Here he is. Um, uh, Ryan says that he was born with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other. Uh, He grew up in Kansas. He grew up in a household where his father instilled in him uh, the respect of guns. Uh, this is a man who grew up with guns. Uh, he, grew, uh, he became a gun runner. Uh, he worked in the gun industry. Uh, he has been on both sides of this uh, debate. And I am thrilled that he is here today to talk about this very important uh, issue uh, from the inside out. Uh, Ryan, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Hey, Richard, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, obviously very sorry for your loss. i glad to chat about this today. I think it's an extremely important issue. I think it's as we'll probably get into, I kind of <clears throat> I sort of think it's the axle around which all the rest of our radicalization and division is wound around. So uh, I think it's very important.
0: And, you know, and your father also, I mean, one of his dear, dear friends uh, was also murdered uh, when he was young. Uh, And uh, you were told about that growing up. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about your growing up. Let's talk about the sunnier side of your life before we get into the darker side of the gun industry. Um, Tell us a little bit. And it's all in this incredible book, Gunfight, which I encourage everyone to read. Um, about your growing up in Kansas and about the world that you grew up in and how guns were such a major part of your life growing
1: up. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I think in the first part of my book, I purposefully try to explain this to people because I think if we're going to make advancements, um, I, th- I think that it would, it would do everybody well to understand this sort of firearms culture that people are attached to in the country and why that doesn't necessarily have to be bad. And I think, you know, I run into a lot of folks who scratch their heads, just not understanding how it is that people like me could grow up with guns and think they're, you know, a healthy part of their life. But that was the way I grew up. Um, We worked very hard on, on a ranch, it was very rural and didn't have much time for fun. And when we did have time for fun, it often involved guns, hunting or shooting with my dad or my grandfather or my brother and uh, my best friends. So through time, you know, that became a culture, guns and, and our time with them became a cultural symbol, um, not because we were doing anything nefarious or planning anything nefarious with guns, but they were um, they became symbolic of both our culture and all of the good times we had together. And I knew a lot of people like that, and I still know a lot of people like that. And it's it's when, when guns become, you know, intertwined and symbolic of something much larger, i.e. culture, mm-hmm. then that's when, that's when we start elevating um, the debate, uh, the issue, the right, whatever it is you want to call it, to something much more, you know, much larger, much more um, emotional than just this, like, tool, I think.
0: Now, I'm a little bit older than you are. Uh, now, it, it's very interesting because uh, I grew up, uh, with Saturday morning westerns and everything and you talk uh, about uh, a television a television series that was crucial in your growing up and that was the a team yeah. uh, and uh, so in both of these instances we saw guns that were depicted in this but we never really saw the carnage or anything that these guns would really inflict on someone uh-huh. uh, it, you know you never really saw what was coming up with that Um. Do you feel that uh, the entertainment industry somehow have also glorified uh, the gun culture in this country?
1: Well, y- yes. Um, and be- because guns, like there's nothing more dramatic in the use of, you know, it's using a shovel is not very dramatic, right? Using a hammer is not very dramatic, it doesn't convey power and emotion, and finality, and death, um, like using, so, you know, I, I completely understand why filmmakers would use guns, because they, they are that powerful. I think, to me, it, it's sort of the beginning of where I think we are now, which is, we can have powerful rights, powerful freedoms, but not without corresponding powerful responsibilities. And I think if you think about the film thing a little bit, we see those rights. We see the power, but we often don't see the kind of responsibility side of things like, you know, in Western, we're like, Oh, old, old, you know, old Chet, He just died. Like I we heard, don't, yeah, yeah. we don't see the damage to his family. We don't see whatever horror was inflicted on him. You know, it just falls off the horse and that's it. Um, <clears throat> and kind of with the A team, they, they used this incredible firepower, but, we rarely saw anyone die in an A-Team episode and certainly never saw the impacting carnage. So it's much like our society now where our rights and responsibilities are kind of out of whack. I think we see that in our film and our art, too.
0: Now, Ryan, in my shows normally, I, you know, I always go back to the five-year-old self because the five-year-old self to me is the purest self. It's before life begins telling you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. Going back and looking at your life, and of course, we get a a real strong sense of your childhood in the book, but did you ever, in your wildest imagination, uh, picture that guns would always be a major part of your life in terms of the career choices that you would make and the path that you would take as you would go through your life?
1: No, no. I thought I was going to be a baseball player or a truck driver, um, and, um, both, neither of which had any advantage over the other, right? They were both equally romantic. Um, I, I didn't think about guns much because guns were like on a, on a ranch where I grew up with, with, and in the sort of rural area of America that I grew up, they were just a natural thing. Like guns just were like, you, you didn't, um, they weren't exceptional in some way as after I graduated from college and I entered the gun industry, um, then, then, then the things and the industry and the politics, then that started getting much more, you know, wrapped up into my psyche and, and obviously America's psyche too.
0: Well, let's, you know, let's go back to when you started, you know, I pulled up a quote here that, I mean, when you started out, uh, weapons manufacturers refused to market high powered automatic weapons to the public. It, it was a very different world that you went into from the world that it is now. Um, I mean, could you even imagine that we would be where we are today?
1: No, no, the the firearms industry today is really <laughs> barely representative um, of the industry that I entered in the culture that I was brought up in. Um, as you note, um, the the industry when I entered it was not perfect, much like our politics twenty five years ago were not perfect. But there was there were norms, responsibilities, lines across you would that you would not step across. Mm-hmm. Um, again, much like our politics. And, and and I think one of the things you're hinting at here is like when I first got in, AR-15s were a pariah. They were something to be put back in the dark alleys and left in the dark corners. And um, anything tactical in the industry's own trade shows, you had to obtain military or police credentials and go in a special cordoned off area to even look at them. Um, You could not display them in the industry trade shows. Today, if you go to the largest industry trade shows, I mean, it's like a third world war zone. I mean, it's tactical gear everywhere all the time it's ar-15s and their derivatives everywhere all the time and so the industry that and that was not because that was not because some law changed that was because the industry itself and people inside it decided to do away with norms that they once believed were important and then decided were not important in other words it was voluntary and um that's what frustrates me the most this was not forced on anybody this these were conscious decisions that were made and I think made not not to the benefit of our country.
0: There are so many questions I've got for you, but I want to go back to the book for a moment. Um, why? What was the light bulb moment or the moment where you said, I have to write this book?
1: Oddly enough, uh, early, I, I don't know, probably. I mean, I say early, like I was in the industry for 25 years, it seems like forever. But what first struck me was sort of the kind of the crazy stories, some of which are in that book, um, because I started feeling like so I was. I,
0: I, excuse me for interrupting. I hope that this is going to be a documentary.
1: <laughs> well, there's some documentary interest and some um, film interest in it. Yeah. It's
0: um, a, it's a, it, I mean, you can't put the book down. And I have to say, not only is the book incredible, congratulations, uh, but the audiobook is it just as riveting so thank you congratulations there as well
1: so i i guess sort of to that point i started feeling even before netflix was a thing right i started feeling like i was living inside this netflix series because the the visions the, the industry itself is very very closed and so the average person across the country in New York or LA or Chicago or, you know, anywhere else has no idea what's going on. It's like you're driving by a hospital every day, but you never go inside of it. You don't know what's going on inside there. Mm-hmm. And the stuff, the stuff that was going inside, the end going on inside the industry was crazy, frightening, funny sometimes, um, I, you know, sometimes very tragic. And, and so I started, I don't know, probably, Oh, probably in around 2003 to 2005 started, I would come home and tell Sarah, um, you know, I got to write this stuff down. Like someday this is going to be a movie. Um, And, and that's sort of where the book began in my mind. What I didn't realize fully at, at that time was the degree to which the industry was also transforming America. And, and, you know, the way the NRA was changing the politics of an entire country and really the culture of an entire country that happened more over time. And I think that's now sort of the through line of the book.
0: I mean, there's, there are stories in this book that I, I mean, that are like, you can't, you can't uh, make the stuff up. Yeah. I mean, like, I remember when the debt, you were trying to collect the debt and yeah. going into a store and taking, guns yeah. that were within the store. And uh, I mean, that's something that in today's world would absolutely never, ever happen.
1: No, I think you you'd not, not only would it not happen for legal reasons, you'd probably be shot, shot but, before it did exactly. happen. You know?
0: Well, I have to tell you, as I am reading this and I am hearing the courage in your voice, I was actually listening to you tell that story. Um, I, I kept saying, this guy's going to get shot. I mean,
1: <laughs> there were a few times I I wondered about it. Yeah,
0: that was. I mean, that was what was going through my head. And last night, I don't know if you heard this story, but there is a shop owner in Georgia who is shutting a store down. A uh, gun owner, uh, he, and he's had this uh, store for years and years and years in his family, uh, and he's shutting it down because uh, he doesn't want to be responsible for selling that gun that's going to be responsible for the next mass shooting.
1: Yeah, I did read about that. And and I think, um, you know, I mentioned there's a there's a book or there's a chapter in the book called Was It a Kimber? And Kimber is the company I work for. But that sort of gets at the the issue that you described with the Georgia gun owner. And that is when a mass shooting would happen. And and for me, the first and kind of the one that everybody remembers in the country, Columbine happened in 1999. I had been in the industry for four years then. And I came to realize that what everybody in the firearms industry first cared about and worried about was 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 my gun was a gun from my company used in a shooting like this. Just
0: to let everyone know.
1: Yeah. Yes. And and, and so we would um, people would scour the news and the police reports to make sure it wasn't something that you sold or built that was used in a mass shooting like that. So there was, you know, people did care, but they cared, you know, kind of out of self-interest but also out of fear and i i worked through the you know the industry that i worked in and the company i worked for i was i tried to be as careful as we possibly could to never make guns and market guns that would be likely to to find themselves used in places like that and thankfully um to my knowledge nothing i ever sold has been used in any place like that but it's because it's because the guns we built and we chose to be responsible. Um, we didn't build high capacity polymer frame handguns, which are often used. We yes. never, we never built, uh, we never built or sold um, AR-15s, which are often used. Um, you see a picture there now. That's that's a that's a Kimber, um, that's a Kimber Repeat. That that gun was built while I was still working at Kimber. That's a two thousand um, dollar. It's styled after a 1911 style handgun, which was built for the U.S. military and for people over a hundred years ago. It's low capacity. It's, it's eight round standard capacity.
0: Well, you know, right in the prologue of your book, and I circled this, uh, you know, right in the very last, uh, sentence of your book, uh, in the prologue, it says, I'm responsible for selling millions of guns. And you, you were very much aware of this. And even you're talking with your uh, kids and you were going to, uh, a black lives matter, uh, event. And, uh, and Sarah, your wife, uh, you know, talking to your sons. And I mean, uh, I don't have children of my own, uh, having that conversation with children now of what to do in case there is a shooting. And that that was a very big possibility. Um, I don't know the age of your sons now, but how, I mean, how do they process what is going on in the world right now?
1: Well, they're 18 and 15. Um, and I, I think it's effed them up pretty bad. Um, I think it's done that to the entire country. I don't think we're going to, like, it ain't cool. It's not natural. It's not something to sc- scoff at that we have kids doing active shooter drills in their schools from the time they're five. Um, that's just, I, I mean, that's just complete and utter bullshit. Uh, and what, it, I mean, my kids own and use guns, they shoot in shooting competitions, and they think that's complete and utter bullshit, right? Yeah. They they um they can hold two thoughts in their heads at the same time. And I and I do sense in the youth of today, much like with climate, um, they're just completely done with the excuses. Um they they, they don't understand these political chasms and definitions that we seem to have laid on ourselves in our culture and in this intransigence that's you know in many ways insane. Um, and so, how do they deal with it? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I mean, I was on a flight to do a TV show in New York, and while I was on the flight, my son, my 18 year old son, he was must have been 17 then, or maybe 16, but was texting me telling me the school was getting ready to go into lockdown. And that was the same on that same flight I learned of the shooting in Oxford, Michigan. Um, the school that had been shot up there. So I am flying to do a TV interview about the gun issue. Why my son is in a school with a lockdown over the gun issue while Oxford, Michigan has been shot up over the gun issue all on the same flight. Mm. Um, And, and like when things like that happen, I don't know how you can't realize that something is like, something's very out of whack. Right. We have made choices that have put that have made um, really risk the entire democracy, but certain risk, certainly risk the mental health of all of our kids.
0: Well, I heard one woman say uh, from South Carolina that her five year old kindergarten uh, daughter uh, should be learning her colors and her ABCs. And she's learning what to do in case a bad person comes into the school uh on any given day and uh you know and none of us know psychologically what this is going to do to our uh, kids uh and young adults 25 30 40 years from now uh and uh which is it's not
1: good but one thing it is doing it's pissing them off
0: uh it is pissing them off uh and with good reason uh but uh you, you you cover really, and I, I don't want to give any spoilers away because we want people to buy the book, but if you can give uh, a little Reader's Digest version of how the NRA changed from being, you, you describe in the book, uh, the NRA of your youth uh, when you would get the magazines. And you would read about hunting competitions and that type of world and how it eventually changed into this political machine that it became. Uh, if you can just give us, take this yeah, back. I think
1: that's, it's very, it's important to understand this both for the gun issue, but for the, for our, our politics on a larger scale, because I do think this is the, this is sort of the crack that widened into our um, radicalization chasm that we have now. So for me, It really started 1999 after Columbine. And we know about this now because enterprising reporters like Tim Mack with NPR have uncovered recordings of the NRA after Columbine. And um, the NRA convention was to happen in Denver just about eight days after Columbine happened in April of 1999. And after the shooting in the sort of national uproar of Columbine, the NRA leaders, in closed door backroom meetings, debated essentially two possible paths. Should we be a part of the solution? You know, try to change policy, try to make things better. The nation's in an uproar. That's one thing we could do. We could be responsible citizens. Who knows how that might go. Or they started to come up with this idea. Could we use these sorts of things to essentially, you know, scare our membership and the American public into more gun control coming or the evil libs are going to own you or you know whatever and they literally debated this and they chose the second i don't think they had any idea how successful they would be i don't think um we as a nation had any idea how that wildfire might spread across the country but they essentially then went out and doubled down and said not only no but hell no um soon charlton Heston. You know, did the famous from my cold dead hands. That was just that was just months after Columbine when he did that. And it set our country on a path to a place where anything, even the worst tragedies can be used to frighten people, scare people, um, develop conspiracy theories, uh, you know, all the sorts of things that we see rampant now. The NRA tapped into this idea in 1999, initially just sort of in and around gun politics, but soon around all of our politics that's why anything can be used now to develop conspiracy theories i mean vaccines are now conspiracy theories like every your local school board is now a conspiracy theory oh, um, and, and, and so the nra figured that out and it's they somehow understood that tapping into fear and propagating fear was very easy and very very effective eventually making entire populaces vote and act in irrational ways, right? Just like 2016 seems irrational to us. Um, the NRA understood that. So that's sort of where it started and, and where it's gone.
0: Now, also, let's talk about uh, 45. Uh, he changed his stance also on uh, assault weapons and the ban. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Lot there's, I think for readers, there may be a few aha moments in the book. Um, first there's off- aha
0: moments in the book.
1: Yeah, first off, um, a lot of conservatives don't like to hear this, but the assault weapons ban and the crime bill of 1994, which Bill Clinton signed in September of 1994, passed for, I think, for one reason. And that's because of a very powerful lobbyist. That lobbyist's name was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan wrote letters to everybody in the Senate begging them to vote for the bill. And made very um, passionate statements about it. Then, um, and and through the years, Donald Trump um, made various statements about essentially being for assault weapons bans, being for longer waiting times, being all the things that would be considered just absolute heresy in the in the Republican Party and the NRA today. But there's lots of statements from him, and I note some of them in the book. Then, by the time he was elected, though, in 2016. Even after parkland he did toy with some gun discussion a bit but the nra snapped him back to attention and he became obviously very ardently um you know pro-gun pro i wouldn't even say pro-gun i don't i don't really know what it is it's pro-irresponsibility is what it is but okay. um the nra you know snapped him back to attention and our in our country and, and you know said hell no one more time and and we are where we are
0: well, Ryan, once again, when you set out to write this book, um, have you, I mean, is this mostly a total, I know that you say early on in the book that you went back and you spoke to people just to make sure that you got as many of the facts right as possible in terms of remembering, but did you ever keep journals or anything or did you begin to just put everything together once you began to write the book? Uh. Uh,
1: yeah both i had some journals i had some notes i kept um my wife sarah who plays prominently in the book is um oftentimes very um frustrated with me because i keep every single email i've ever sent and received um i have all of yeah and and so um for the most part i didn't have a formal journal I started when I started really getting serious about the book, I started going through and reassembling all those things, digging through my old emails, verifying it. And some stuff I figured out that my recollection was wrong or was off in some way like, oh, I thought that happened in this day or month and it happened later. So I I had to straighten out a bunch of that stuff as you do, as one does with 25 years worth of memories. But um, it was it was never formal journal, but lots of written record. And was your initial goal in writing the book what it became? No, it um, again. It, I started with this sort of Netflix-ish crazy idea of it being sort of a cross between The Office and Breaking Bad. Um, well,
0: I, I'm telling you, when I'm reading about strippers and I, you know, and uh, whipped cream, and <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, that's the bizarre part of it. You know, just to, on a lighter note. Uh, and so I
1: thought that. I thought that's the way the book would be. But as I as I dove into writing it and my agent kept pressing me, you know, she kept saying, no, this is like you experience something much bigger here. And so the, like it was the, the sort of North Star of politics, which I think now is guns and the gun issue, certainly on the right side of the aisle, mm-hmm. as I began writing it and you know, codifying all these journals and all the facts, I did come, I came to realize, wait a second, this is, this is about something much bigger. And so, um, and I think that's, you see in the book, like there's a kind of a yin and yang, like a wide lens and then a narrow lens. So the wide lens is on the country. I try to do some history and educate people without being boring and then the narrow lens is me, my family, the crazy characters that you learn about, and you you sort of alternate between those two all the way through the book. So you learn about the gun issue and how we got here, without just some boring history treatise about it, which you know anybody could write that, but I sort of lived it. So the characters kind of pull you through that.
0: Well, Sarah, you know, does feature prominently in the book as you know she is your wife, uh, but I want to ask, and I hope you uh, you know, what was her initial reaction? Uh, And was she a sounding board throughout uh, your writing the book?
1: Oh, yeah. She was my first sounding board on every chapter. Um, She's a hard editor, Um, very hard, um, but very honest. And she pressed me, you know, as as I note in the book, she she has been a fan of me doing it. I think both because she believed that the story had to be told Mm -hmm. and she knew it would be somehow, you know, cathartic for me to write it i think
0: when did you begin to tell others that you were writing this book
1: i kept it secret for a long time because of the um it news leaked the indus, some people inside the industry figured out about s- s- five months or six months before the book released so it was pretty much done and final
0: how, how did they find out about it if you don't mind my asking
1: well when um pu- when publishing deals are done or that like there are little news releases that like you know and i'm not in the publishing world my agent my editors and everything are but there are little news releases that are done like oh this publishing house bought this title from this agent or this writer and we actually i actually asked the um, publishing house which is hashette to keep it quiet as long as they could, like, don't issue that press release. Don't make a big deal out of it. And a lot of times when they do, when the publishing houses do that, they want to make a big deal out of it because they want to tell people, Oh, we're excited to have this book coming. So I kept it buried, but that press release eventually got out to some people in the industry at, as buried as we tried to keep it. And, um, then news started to swirl around and I wanted to keep it quiet because I knew how angry the industry would be. Um, some of the, you know, I call them couch commandos in the book, but yes. you know,
0: but um, what was your biggest concern or fear with uh people finding out about the book before the book came out? I mean, obviously, people are going to form opinions, uh, and I'm sure that there are a lot out there of pe- people have probably written uh reviews of the book who have never even read it.
1: Oh, yeah, there, I'm sure there is that, but well, I was concerned about a my- not a single thing, but a myriad of things, um, because I knew. And I describe in the book, like, I didn't just write this book and be critical of the industry. I was critical of the industry from being inside the industry for a long time. So I was both celebrated and kind of a pariah already. So I knew the kind of angst and pushback and anger that would happen. Um, I was worried about our kids going to school, like physically. I was worried about snipers above our house. I was worried about Sarah and I going to the grocery store um, and being physically safe. I was worried about, we, we had... I was worried about our online safety. Uh, I was worried, I liked all that stuff. Um, as it turned out, a lot of that ugliness did happen. We haven't been physically assaulted, thank God, but um, a lot of the ugliness did, but it's been so uh by like literally like hundred to one praise and thanks and people across the country who maybe own guns or their family does mm-hmm. say things like, thank you for writing this um it's gone too far i've been a gun owner my whole life or i lived in a gun owning family and we can't keep going this way so i feel pretty validated that there's there is this frustrated majority out there that is not and, and even of gun owners that is not represented by these crazy assholes that we see marching up and down the streets with ar15s or that Well what about pet. that for a moment
0: uh, why how do you think that we got to this point where there is that fear is so stoked to the extreme level that is gotten here. Uh, well,
1: it's effective, right? I mean, it's like there's a whole business built around it, and now there's a whole political system built around it. Um, the entire right side of our aisle operates on this fuel that the NRA created this irrational fear. I mean, everything is about fear now. I mean, and, and the. It, all of gun politics are basically centered around the idea of fear of somebody taking your guns. That's it. It's a fear. Um, it's a manufactured fear. And it's hard for the right side of the aisle to get off that drug once. I mean, we see it now. I mean, we, we've, we've got an ex president who the right side of the aisle just can't seem to quick. Why? Cause he's damn good at ginning up fear and retribution and um, owning the libs. And that's really, you know, you think about it. A red MAGA hat is really a big middle finger, and the big middle finger is an effective way to to get back at people. And an AR fifteen, um, you know, shoved in somebody's face uh, is a really effective big middle finger. A red hat. That's why it's so central to the right side of the aisle, and it's hard. It's hard for them to get off that drug.
0: Your book opens with uh, uh, someone coming up and just attacking your son at an event.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that
0: is literally how your book opens.
1: So I, interesting story about that. I had written the whole book and my uh, editor kept telling me, we need something. You need a, a story at the beginning of the book to put the reader, you know, in the present with you. And I'm like, I've written the book. Like I I, I don't have anything else to write. And we went down to, that was June of 2020. We went to a black lives matter rally here in Montana. It was amazing. There were like 1,500 people there, which I didn't ever think would assemble in downtown Northwestern Montana here in Kalispell. And there were also about between 100 and 200 of these armed Second Amendment patriots, almost all of them with open carry AR-15s as counter protesters. Mm -hmm. And we knew it'd be a very, very volatile situation. To me, it felt like, you know, open gasoline with matches being waved over the top, like something could explode at any second Well, my son was attacked by one of these guys down there. Um, thankfully not with the gun, but he was armed and he started screaming and poking my son in the chest again, like the gas and the match and the matches are getting very close. And, I and was,
0: you said, if you touch him one more time,
1: yeah, you will, gone, I will,
0: you'll never be able to, you, you will, I'll, I'll fix it where you will never be able to walk again.
1: Yeah. I said lots of stuff to him and, and it involved a lot of four letter words. But, I'm sure. Um, um <laughs> You know, I came back from that shaken. I sat down though at the house and then I thought, wait a second. And I called my editor. I said, You're not going to believe this, but something just happened that the book's going to open there. And I told her what happened. And she goes, yeah, that's right. It is going to open there. Go write it. And that's, and you know, that's how it happened.
0: Now, uh, since the book has come out, um, what is the biggest thing that has surprised you the most about the response that you're getting to the book?
1: that again that there are so many people gun owners families of gun owners um centrist people who have never owned guns but are curious that are completely done with this loud minority of you know jack wagons that have the mic on the on the gun side like there there is a there is a frustrated majority out there who are not okay with this that so that's been the very best thing that i've seen and i hoped for that um, it has the, the other side, of the industry, obviously I'm a pariah. They've doubled down. They hate me. Most of them won't read the book. They just know they shouldn't. Um, and so that I, I would have liked to make a little more progress there because it's, I think, you know, you know, it's not a preachy book. Like I, I don't have, there aren't no. a bunch of policy prescriptions. This is just like, this is what happened, right? This is what happened to me. You do with it what you will. Um, I mean, I think, I think there are, things you can take for it, from it that we need to do as a country to move forward, but it's not like it's of some, you know, policy treatise.
0: Brian, I'm going to tell you, I have never owned a gun in my life. I've never held a gun in my life until I was on jury duty, and we were dealing with a situation where this kid was on parole, and they passed the gun around that he had shot someone with, and I have been saying for years and years and years that it's no longer about the Second Amendment, in my opinion, that it's all about commerce. And I think that we have gone way beyond it being about the Second Amendment. And yet every time and you talk about this in the book, every time there's another mass shooting, gun sales go through the roof. Yeah. And the and again, the fear that is in this country right now where people feel that they're going to come and take our guns and they're going to, how do we get past this?
1: Well, so that's a hard question. Um, and I think it's, it's flummoxed a lot of people. I think, I think that basic issue is really, has really, as I say, started with this interview, I think that is the axle around which all of our politics are wrapped around. And and I use this analogy. If you think about universal background checks, which poll in the mid 80s, um, nothing really polls in the mid 80s, right? But universal background checks poll in the mid 80s. Um, And yet we've not passed it. it. That's to correct basically the gun show loophole. We've not passed that since Columbine, even though that issue was debated hotly after columbine so 1999 to current 24 years we've yet we've yet to pass that at, at something that pulls in the 80s and i think it is because guns and radicalization and fear and everything that that the nra created now forms the, the infrastructure of the modern gop of the republican party and and think about it like this for it to pull in the mid 80s that means lots of republicans have to be in favor of universal background checks yet we don't do it why? I think it's because it's like it's a beam in in the GOP house. It's a, it's up there at the top of the ceiling. They see asbestos flaking off every day, and they're like, you know, that that's going to give us cancer. We should do something about that. We should pull that beam out. And they they talk about it. I'm like, yeah, we, we're in favor of fixing that. And then somebody says, you know, though, if you pull that beam out, um, the whole house is going to crash down. And they're like, uh, yeah. I tell you what, let's just live with the asbestos. Let's just live with the bad stuff. Like they're so reliant on the beam they don't care about the the stuff flaking off and giving everybody cancer and i think that's what's happening in our country we have to figure out a way to replace that beam um and i think i think it is true that when the beam is pulled out of the republican party that geo, the the gun fear thing is pulled out of the republican party it is going to come crashing down and they know it
0: do you think that uh do you think that there's a way that uh we can get to the point where And do you think that the assault weapon should be banned?
1: I don't spend any time worrying about, I don't don't think that's an effective policy right now. Um, There's between 25 and 30 million of them in the United States. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of other things that we can do that would make incremental, um, you know, would make our lives marginally better instead of continuing to make them marginally worse. Um, And I think, the ban is often something that's used as sort of this cultural trap for progressives or liberals or anybody on the left side. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, and I think we'd be better off just not stepping in it all the time. Um, You know, for instance, we could raise the minimum age on semi-automatic handguns from 18 to 21 or semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21. Um, Would that solve everything? No. Um, But it would have stopped Buffalo would have stopped Uvalde would have stopped, you know, So they are the, and it, and it doesn't involve a ban. People wouldn't freak out. They wouldn't, you know, I could go on with a few other small policy prescriptions like this point, I guess my point is we didn't get to this place in our country because of one singular policy decision. We got here because of a myriad of policy and breaking of norms over 30 years. And I think we're going to get out of it by slowly putting them back together.
0: Well, you know, again, in your book, uh, when you started out in the gun industry and these episodes, and it does unfold like a movie, uh, like a Netflix series, um, we get this sense of you having a very strong business sense of what needed to be done in many situations. You would go in And it was like, this is what needs to be done. And you would go in and you'd say, let's do this, this, this. And you would turn things around. Um, If you had the control to do what needed to be done, what are the next three steps that you would take uh, in this country in terms of where we need to go? Uh, You're muted.
1: Sorry. There's a there's a a there was a law. There's several things that could be done, but there was a law passed in two thousand five called Placa, the Protection Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And it essentially provides a broad liability shield for firearms companies. If the the thinking was that if um, guns are used on unlawful ways, gun companies shouldn't be held liable for those. I think on the surface, that's not a bad legal argument. Just like if a car was used illegally, the car manufacturer shouldn't be held liable for it. Okay. But the problem is, is there's this kind of wide chasm in PLACA that doesn't address, well, what if firearms manufacturers market irresponsible and irresponsibility and encourage it? Not just, not just bad thing. And so we see now the sort of rampant marketing of tactical guns, encouraging of guns in insurrection. I mean, I, I've written several Atlantic articles on this and the ways in which um, the industry now is embracing radicalization to sell more guns is all in on um you know Donald Trump's politics all in um like we have to figure out a way to roll back that irresponsibility so i think changing liability laws to make sure that i mean if a firearms company markets irresponsible irresponsibility that um they are held responsible for it like i, I we can't keep going like this because um, we're going to have more buffaloes and more Uvalde's. I think we have to figure out a way to, to put our sort of behavioral norms back together. I know that the industry used to do this stuff um, voluntarily. It wasn't laws that were passed. And so, and it wasn't very long ago that we did those things. I think we have to put this stuff back in the closet where it belongs, like the tactical gear, the worship of AR-15s, all that stuff has to stop. And then the the third one is just this, the decent citizens that contact me, uh, you know, about the book, we have to have enough courage to stand up to pe- other people in our lives that um, that sort of break these norms and embrace th- this sort of craziness about guns. Um, they should guns shouldn't be your identity. They shouldn't be worn on your hats and your t-shirts and on your bumper stickers and you know they shouldn't form up um, this weird sort of tactical, aggressive mentality. And we have to figure out a way to address that in our own social so, circles.
0: You know, when, when we have our political leaders like Nikki Haley, uh, who will go out and put on, uh, uh, camouflage and, uh, you know, and take a picture with an AR-15, uh, the day after, uh, a mass shooting, uh, What kind of a message is that sending out to the world?
1: Oh, I think these Christmas cards, there's Lauren Lauren Boebert Christmas cards, Thomas Massey holding an M60, which is the gun of Rambo. um, Like it's it's sending, they are searching for ways to... um, sort of prove their totalitarian street cred without having to say it exactly. And nothing does that like guns, right? That's what like <laughs> nothing conveys power over somebody else like you holding a loaded gun over them. And they're basically doing that to our democracy. I think it's, I think it, think it sends a horrible message. We ought to shame anybody who does that. They ought to be shamed into oblivion. Um, I don't know that we could, you know, we have very powerful free speech laws and I'm, I'm glad we do. But the, there's no law that has changed where all of a sudden you know Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, you know shoots all manner of AR-15s on every one of her political ads and in her Christmas cards like that. That was just a social norm that we've accepted that sh- that should be disqualifying. Um, and and we've got to get and we need to say that. And <laughs> you know we need to get back to that.
0: You know it, you know it's like they're trying to play both sides of the coin here. They will say that uh, we do not need to politicize these issues. Uh, and every time there's a mass shooting, uh, we always hear thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and this is not the time to talk about it. And while we want to give this grace period of not talking about it, yet enough, another mass shooting takes place, yeah. uh, and nothing is being discussed about this. The other issue that I hear about is that we need to address, you know, mental illness. Uh, in this country, um, and you know, and when I see, you know, you know what does it describes, you know, a mental uh, illness. Uh, when I see someone going into uh, a supermarket uh, in Buffalo uh, with a strategic, I, I, I'm an entertainer, I'm a performer, I study a script, I study it with uh, precision. And that person did the same thing going into yeah. a supermarket and shooting these people, you know, and perhaps we need psychologists or something, someone to step up and speak out about this. Is that truly mental illness? No. I mean. Uh, no.
1: And Mark, Mark Fullman, um great writer wrote a book called trigger points um, where he addresses this. Is there some sort of, mental issue, deficiency, breakdown, something in those people who go, anybody who murders people, of course there is. But to your point, these are not people who are like, you know, in a puddle, slobbering, can't, you know, can't speak their name. They're not like you wouldn't recognize their, their mental deficiency. In fact, they plan, they strategize. They, I mean, that kid bought his gun, drove three hours to Buffalo, knew the grocery store, had tactical gear, engaged an officer, killed the officer, his tactical gear saved him. Like he, these are not the actions of an insane quote, you know, air quotes here person. Yeah. You you can't. And so this just falling back, like, well, let's just find all the people who look insane and then not give them a gun. Like how, how are you going to identify these people? Cause they don't appear to be insane until they go kill somebody. So that I just think that's a, that's a, that's a cop out. Of, of course we need better um, care f- you know mental health care of course but that but you're not going to solve the gun issue or the mass shooting issue by just saying you know we need better mental mental care mental health care Mm
0: -hmm. well i want to go back to your father for a moment because you know in uh the book you also you know mentioned you know getting uh a gun for the holidays everything and your father really taking you by the shoulders and saying you know talking about the repercussions uh of uh handling the gun uh, irresponsibly and doing the wrong thing. Uh, And of course, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, uh, him uh, losing a friend at 16. Um, You know, I do believe that because, in my opinion, uh, and it's just my opinion, folks, um, because of easy access of guns now, that people are using guns as a point of resolution. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, maybe it's social media, maybe it's a lot of things, I don't know, that people are not as empathetic as they once were, and that people are not thinking about the repercussions of pulling that trigger. And uh, and I'm not talking about mass shootings now. I'm talking about, uh, you know, someone ringing the wrong doorbell and getting shot or uh, getting into the wrong car. I did that last week. I was in the parking lot and I opened the uh, thinking it was my car and then I realized I'm opening the wrong car door. And then I thought immediately of those two young girls in Texas. Um, And how in a split second, uh, because someone had easy access to guns. I remember a situation years ago, it was a road rage incident where a woman shot a woman and killed her point blank and she said that she had never shot a gun in her life, that all she wanted to do was scare her. Yeah. Um. And, uh, and I don't think, you know, I, I know I'm uh, a lot going on in my head right now, but do you agree with me when I say this? That if Yeah. You-
1: so I think what you're hinting at and what I'm worried about um, it is one and the same thing in this you know i I tell that story of me and my dad in the book because I think it's sort of emblematic of where we once were as a country, and you think about it, think of not just me and my dad in that story, but think of it like as the citizens in our system. you can have guns, but you have to be very responsible. you need to know what they're for you need don't joke around, don't think that these things aren't built to kill kill things they are be very serious like that's how we used to treat guns. In the last four or five years, we've put about 110 million new guns into the U.S. populace, and an unprecedented number of those are new gun buyers that have, they've never gone through, they've never experienced this sort of culture of responsibility. They haven't gone through gun training classes because now 28 states don't even require any kind of training or permitting for concealed carry. So we've reduced the sort of um, forced or legislative responsibility. So what, what I'm warning here is is that this old system represented in my book by me and my dad of like the balancing of freedom and responsibility now I think it's way out of whack now we're just focused on the freedom and that's it well when you like the freedom in and around guns is a very damn powerful thing and it's final um and and so I think i I, I think your worry is is correct and i i will go so far as to say um i think we have a lot of dark days in front of us because of it i Mm -hmm. think with this thing you know a country like ours and an issue like this is a big slow moving boat and we've put it on the water and it's going to take a long time to turn um and, and, and so we shouldn't we shouldn't kid ourselves about what's going to come down the pike. Uh, Ralph Yarrell in Kansas City or the two gir- or the or the um, girl in Albany, New York that goes down the wrong driveway or the Texas cheerleaders or like you're going to see a lot more of that.
0: You know, it's very interesting because I, I look at where we are uh, in uh, today's world and and I see these people who are really fighting with these fears that their guns are going to be taken away. And they're always going, my rights, my rights, my rights. And I never hear them talking about the rights of kids being able to go to school. I go for a walk every morning. And as I'm walking in my, I live out in the country, uh, as I know you do. And I see these kids waiting to get on the school bus to go to school. And, uh, And I almost am going to burst into tears think about this. When I see these kids getting on school buses going to school, and I pray every day for these kids' safety that they're all going to make it home. Yeah. Um, and I think of that these school uh, these children. Um, I look at myself, uh, the age of these kids, and Uvalde and uh, and in other school shootings, and uh, and I you know Ryan, what it was like when you were six and seven years old going to school. Yeah. And that you didn't have those fears. Uh, and what it must be like living in the world that these kids are living in. And, uh, and I, I watched this documentary on MSNBC, and I, I had to turn it off I, when I saw those children on the school bus, covered in blood, uh, some of them passing out from the shock of what they had experienced. Um, and this is not something that's just going to go away, uh, people hear about a mass shooting on television now, and I'm not saying that the world is getting insensitive to all of this, but they hear it and then they go to a commercial break and they get up and they make a bologna sandwich. Uh, this is not just another television show that we're watching. This is the reality of the world we're living in now.
1: Yeah and these are conscious decisions right These are and the, the one so the hopeful thing for me at least is like the thing that you, the, the sort of situation you just described, it's not gravity. Right. It's not forced upon us. It didn't happen. It's not some law of physics, though. That's a result of things that we decided to do. And we can undecide them like, you know, these are it's fixable. Why? Because we created it. And um, I, I think also what I try to remind people who scream freedom, freedom, freedom all the time, like our country does not exist. Our democracy does not exist so that we can protect one and only one right. Our country exists. We formed it. We fight for it. We participate in it because we care about, generally speaking, the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we're trying to do here. Right. We're not we're not like free speech doesn't exist just on its own. The Second Amendment doesn't exist just on its own. Freedom of religion doesn't exist just on its own. Um We care about all those things because we care about the larger thing, protecting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if one of the rights and freedoms gets out of balance and starts jeopardizing all the rest of those, like those kids in Uvalde, they don't have life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, Those shoppers in Buffalo, they don't have that. We, especially responsible gun owners, should be the first people who worry about rebalancing freedoms. So that they don't jeopardize the most important things, which again are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
0: Amen. Um, in closing, um, and again, uh, and I have to—I'm going to I'm gonna say it, Ryan. You're one of my heroes. Uh, oh, thank thank you. you for writing this book. Um, what is your ultimate hope that people will come away with uh, after reading your book?
1: I guess that the sort of facade. And made-up stories and impenetrability of this gun debate are simplified in a way that you can understand them. That you 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 kind of know how it all came together, so you could unwind it if you want to. It's not like it's not a crazy chemical formula that other people can't understand or some you know like it, there's really nothing complex about it. Uh, it's a, it's a simple thing that happened, and I think if people just understand that, it becomes a lot less um, daunting and intimidating when you see sort of the simplistic way it all came together. I mean, we are where we are now, but it's not a, it's not a hard formula to understand. So that's really what I want people to say when they're done with it. Like, I mean, you can be angry, which a lot of people are when they read portions of the book, or you can be distraught, which they are. Um, but what I really want is for people to say, okay, now I understand.
0: Great. Uh, Don't go anywhere for a moment. I'm going to give you the final word today. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here. Uh, Today is uh, National Gun Violence Prevention Day. Um, And uh, it takes more than thoughts and prayers. Uh, You can all get involved. Uh, Get involved by going online, finding out about organizations where you can get involved. And uh, anything you can do to get out there and make your voices heard. It's very important, as Ryan has done with his book. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to give you the final word in just a moment. It could be about any, you can say anything about anything that we talked about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't say that you wish that we had, or just any final word that you want to leave everyone with. And don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, I will end the broadcast. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here today. I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone, call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while, and let them know how they've made an impact on your life. Uh, Not an email, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let them know that they've made a difference. Uh, Order two copies of this book today. Call your favorite bookseller and ask for this book. If they don't have it, tell them to get it on their shelves. Uh, you can go to Amazon and you can get uh, a copy of this book, or you can order the Audible uh, version of this book uh, with Ryan uh, reading his own in his own words. It's great. Um,
1: I had to audition for that, by the way. I was sort of... I mean, I thought that was sort you of. You had audition
0: for it? Are you serious? For my,
1: for my own book, yeah, but okay. But they take they take this serious. <laughs> you got the job. That's I did, the, the, yeah, I did. You
0: got the job, and it, and you do a great job yeah. with it. Uh, so I always say, you know, I have a dear friend. He says we're all in the same storm, uh, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to leave the screen, and Ryan, I'm turning it over to you. It's all yours. And okay. thanks again for writing this book. It's important.
1: Thanks a lot for having me today. Um, I guess I would like to end by saying that um, this issue, you may or may not be involved in the gun issue or think it's important to be involved in the gun issue. And I want to tell you that I think that no matter what it is, you care about women's reproductive rights, the environment, something I'm very worried about and very involved in. I think you should first be involved and active in trying to improve the gun issue, because I believe that the chasm on all of our politics and all of our policy areas are not likely to improve very much until we figure out a way to break down and unwind this gun thing and put it back together in a responsible way. Then I think you will see the politics and policies of other areas that you may care about start to get better, too. So I really do think it starts here. Um, I appreciate Richard having me on today and um th- thanks for everybody for caring. Thanks.